Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 105 with my guest, Allie Handel. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Oh, my dog's chiming in in the background there. Um, The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, Mental Pod is also the Twitter name you can follow me at. And as, uh, as I've mentioned before, I am slated to come up to the um, Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland, April 18 through 21. And I'm looking into possibly doing a live show, um, live version of this show, in addition to uh, me doing some stand up or satire up there. Um, so if and I've got a, a lot of um, interviews lined up for uh, for Portland, so I'm really excited to to get up there and uh, meet some of you guys and record you and to just uh, you know um, see you in person. It uh, sometimes feels a little a little removed um, doing doing this show and and um, not getting that face to face kind of experience like I used to get when I would uh, go do stand up and people would stare at my act and then I would uh, look at them with hatred as they would file out. I miss that. I miss that closeness with them. <laughs> you know what I think I'm I'm craving is I've connected deeper to people in 2 years doing this podcast than I did in 24 years of doing stand up and and I want to I've had a couple of experiences where I've performed on somebody else's podcast live, and a listener has come out and um, and I've met them, and it's just been it's just been feel almost feels like you're like you're meeting um, like a friend because um, I've run out of words to describe what I'm talking about. Um, what do I? Oh, I did go see a doctor. For those of you that are concerned about my vision loss uh, from from last week. Um, my vision went out for about uh, 15 minutes in my left eye, completely out, then came back. 
And uh, doctors haven't been able to find anything yet, but I, they're ruling out some of the more serious um, stuff. So um, I'm I'm not too I'm not too worried. Um, I got a lot of surveys for this for this show. Um, I hope it's not too many. Let's get into it. This first one is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and it was uh, filled out by Lulu. And she says, I'm supposed to feel excited about my future, but I don't. I feel utter dread. I'm about to graduate college with an English degree. I'm supposed to feel fulfilled about being creative, but I don't. I feel ashamed and worthless about what I create. I'm supposed to feel grateful about my parents' money, but I don't. I feel overwhelming responsibility both to earn it from them by being what they want me to be and to use it as a disclaimer for my depression, as in, my problems aren't real problems. Socioeconomically, I'm A-OK, so I don't deserve to be unhappy. You know, and to that, I would say there's financial poverty and then there's emotional poverty. And a lot of us grow up in households where they're, the basic needs are met, the basic practical needs, you know, food, um, schooling, clothes is covered, but there is a, a poverty of human connection. And so don't just embrace what you're, what you're feeling and, and talk about it. That's the, that's the best advice I can, I can give. Uh, this next one is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mark. He's straight. He's in his 40s, um, was raised in a stable and safe environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. He writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. I had a friend who told me I could squeeze my sister's tits while she slept. He was doing it, and it seemed like a way to touch a boob. He was from an abusive family. He also showed me it was okay to grab girls' butts, so I did that. I also got caught shoplifting after he showed me how to do that. Basically, I did anything he said, uh, which most of it was fucked up. He grew into a larger man than me now, and I fear running into him someday, as I could not beat him in a fair fight. Uh, not sure why it would have to turn into a fight. Deepest, darkest thoughts? I fear there is no one who will ever love me, or I hate myself so much that I found people who loved me, but I chased them away by being such a dick. It always comes back to me and how I fucked things up somehow. So I'm alone every night with people who don't really give a shit about me. It is a dark cloud that hangs over and taints everything I do every day. I really should hunt that guy down and face him. Deepest Darkest Secrets. I went to the seediest gay bar on the other side of town and got naked right next to the pool table while I either sucked guys off or they sucked me off. I remember looking down at this old man with my dick in his mouth thinking his dad must have fucked him up somehow. I also used to pick up prostitutes and crack whores and get blowjobs for 20 bucks. They are everywhere if you know what to look for and are very good at blowjobs. Um, that lead to gay guy that led to gay guys giving me blowjobs in the parks and behind stores. Sometimes I think I am gay. Other times I think they are the only ones who would accept me as fucked up and disgusting as me and my only chance at finding love. I only want to be loved, but this makes me super needy and a total turn off to any normal person. Um, what are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? He writes, I'm at a point where sexual fantasy doesn't happen. When I masturbate, I look at vintage strippers. I used to obsessively look at all kinds of porn, but gave that up to try and get back to normal. I guess I dream about having a steady girlfriend. It seems like an impossibility and something I will never have again. I have masturbated thinking about getting married to my last girl girlfriend. 
Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He writes, I have no one. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, completely pathetic and useless. And then on the comments, uh, any comments to make the podcast better, he writes, try not to beat yourself up all the time and not be so depressed. That is the goal, right? I know saying that won't help, but it can be sad at times. Well, thank you for your honesty about that. And I would say I'm I'm going to try to make a concerted effort to beat myself up less, and I hope that you can too, because it sounds like we both suffer from the same um, issues with, with self-hatred. So I'm sending you a big a big hug. This next one is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by a uh, girl. Uh, She's 16. Her name's Caitlin. And uh, her happy moment, she says, The happiest I've ever been was lying on a trampoline with my best friend in the world on a sunny afternoon when I was about 11, sharing secrets and laughing and goofing around, just being 11-year-olds. We had a few afternoons like that. One day we sat in a park for about five hours and ate about six ice creams between us. On the way out, we got chased out by a drunk homeless man. Another time we climbed up a huge hill and we got up there. We just told dirty jokes until our faces hurt from laughing. That's beautiful. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Collector, um, or Struggle in a Sentence uh, survey, uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Superfall. Uh, describing his depression, he writes, My lack of self-esteem means the future will mirror the past as a perfect reflection of my never-ending failure as a man, an adult, a friend, family member, partner, and a human being. About his anxiety, he writes, The world is so beautiful, and I I am at one with it until I am around other people, and then I am separate and alone and an outcast. I am always lonely, so being by myself is more of a comfort because the loneliness makes sense. I've been to a hundred parties, but always feel alone and not present there. And about his sex addiction, he writes, How's this for fucked up? When I'm having sex with a man, I close my eyes and think of a woman. When I'm having sex with a woman, I close my eyes and think of a man. Engaging in random hookups with people, I'm unable to get aroused. It means I'm not really, it's not really sex, is it? It's something else. A way to confirm my low self-worth in the world. And finally... Um, this is from the struggle in a sentence collector filled out by John and about his depression. He writes, being bipolar two is like eternally marching in the world's worst parade. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with Allie Handel, who I met uh, via email. I, I guess you would listen to a couple of uh, episodes. You yeah. let me know that you were a uh, local. Fan. Uh, thanks. Uh, and a local guitar player, which always piques my uh, my interest. So uh, 
we met, we had lunch, chatted, and uh, I was like, yeah, I, I, I'd really like to get your get your story on on tape. Plus, I I love uh, I love meeting female guitarists that can shred. <laughs> there's something <laughs> there's something uh, uh, I don't know. There's 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 so much. Um, stereotyping of women in rock that they can't do this that they can't do that and um i just love it when i when i when i meet somebody that kind of defies people's idea of of uh of a stereotype you've uh recorded on albums with uh with neil young uh you've toured with a whole bunch of people you do a lot of work as a studio musician um what what am I leaving out? Um, well, I'm an artist and songwriter myself, and that's kind of the bulk of what I do is um, my own career as a singer songwriter. Um, but I did start out as a lead guitar player, and you know I kind of relished the idea of kind of shocking people when they come to see me live. And the whole guitar girl guitar thing is kind of fun for me. Yeah. Uh, so if people want to check out your music, they can go to allyhandle dot com. Uh, and handle is spelled Ali is A-L-I and handle is H-A-N-D-A-L um, but I digress let's get to uh, let's get to what we were talking about and I don't know if this is the right place to mention it or not but one of the things that um, we were talking about was seminal events in your life and then you left this huge one out <laughs> that you called me or you emailed me after we had had lunch and you were like oh I forgot about this and I and I was like, how the fuck do you forget that? <laughs> I don't know. But that's either. the way the brain works, man. When I guess the... it blocked it out. Yeah. It's really strange. Because I, I remember when we were having lunch and you were saying, you know, stories really are what draw people in. And that's true because that's what I love to hear on your podcast and other podcasts like it. I love hearing people's personal stories and kind of what they go through emotionally. And I was trying to think, okay, what stories do I have that are emotionally compelling? I'm like, that anybody might be interested in hearing about. And I just really, at lunch, I, I kind of couldn't really think of a story. I could kind of think of like, well, this happened and this happened. But then I was, I got home and I'm like, oh my God, I totally <laughs> forgot this majorly traumatic event in you know, yeah. my young adulthood. But um, yeah, I guess I, I don't really think about it very much anymore, but it's definitely influenced how I approach relationships with men and some of my kind of underlying fears. I, I, I definitely, it has had a lasting impact on me for sure. Yeah. Well, let's start, let's start with that story. Um, you were dating a guy. Um, this was how, how many years ago? A lot of years ago. Um, I was, let's see, I think it was my second year in college. I was at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And um, I was dating somebody who lived in uh, Berkeley, in the Bay Area. And um, he was a musician, a uh, guitar player, as most of my boyfriends um, and now husband <laughs> are. Um, but, w you know, we... I think we had been dating for quite, it was for quite a while because I had actually had a key to his place and um, we were very much in love and um, he was an you know, amazing musician and you know, we had what I thought was a great relationship and, um, and I was in school in, in Los Angeles and, and he was up in the Bay area and 
one weekend, I thought it would be really a great idea. And I think I was about 19, so that maybe gives you some insight into my great ideas, because I think <laughs> when you're 19, you have a little bit more romantic versions of <laughs> visions of what is a good idea. But I thought it would be a great idea to surprise him for the weekend, um, because I had a key to his place, and so why not you know, be there when he gets home Boy, from this work. Is, this is the boilerplate for every horror story oh, ever. Oh, my God. It was such a horror story. But, you know, I was so excited. And um, I don't remember telling anybody about the trip. And, and I used to drive up to the Bay Area a lot. I still do because I have family up there. Um, so, you know, I made my trip up to the Bay Area. And, I, of course, I knew where he lived. And... Um, very, very excited, 19 years old, and going to surprise my boyfriend, who I was just so in love with. I let myself into his place, and um, he he was a room, he had a roommate, so he shared his place with an older woman. I don't believe she was home, um, and his room was upstairs. So um, it was, I think it was like the afternoon, I, and I walked up the stairs and, and um, let myself into his bedroom, and... I opened the door and the place was disgusting. It was a complete mess. Had like, you, had you been in there before? Oh yeah, I had been there before many times. I'd spent the night many times. I mean, we were well into this relationship and um, intimate and all that kind of stuff. And we were so I, I was, but I was there for the first time by myself, and he didn't know I was coming. So the room was a disaster. I mean, kind of bordering on like something you would see on hoarders just clothes everywhere and disgusting and stuff all over the bed and as i kind of got closer to the bed i noticed like on the um sorry that was my cat making a noise <laughs> um I, as i got closer to the bed i noticed on on the um the nightstand right next to the bed there was loose pot just drugs just sitting on the nightstand not even like a joint it was just kind of loose and it was kind of strewn all over the room on different surfaces and um you know i had had a thing it be strangely because i you know did tend to date musicians i kind of had a problem with dating people who did drugs and um he knew that and so he hid it from me and I didn't know he was smoking pot and I didn't know he was and I was pretty naive um, so I saw pot everywhere it wasn't just like seeing one joint it was kind of strewn in this weird way all over the room and then I started noticing on the bed there was all these papers and pictures and it turns out as I looked closer it, there was just cut out pictures of naked women all over the place like this pornography was like cut out i'm actually getting kind of anxious just talking about it but it was it would cut out in little um little squares and some of them that didn't even have their faces so it was just like their private parts cut out and i kind of looked he had a closet that was like full of boxes and now i'm snooping right but i was so horrified and you know just kind of freaking out i opened his closet door and there was just piles of boxes and magazines and um, cut, cut like it was just weird because it wasn't just like like a copy of Playboy opened. It was like 
cut out pictures. I just didn't know what that meant. There's, I still don't know what like, that meant. Like an addictive objectifying quality to it, it that made you weird. uncomfortable. It made right? me really uncomfortable. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. I would imagine the the bulk of men have some type of pornography laying around. Right. So, but but it was the. It the, was strange. It yeah. like most people, I don't think cut out pictures. It had kind of a serial it. killer vibe <laughs> yeah, to it. Kind of. <laughs> Maybe that explains my obsession with serial killers. But that's a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was just weird, and it so there and they were everywhere. It wasn't just on the bed. They were there were they were on the nightstand and on uh, on the dresser. It was just it was weird, um, and I already kind of had. I was already uncomfortable, even with regular pornography, just as a young woman who was a feminist and still am a feminist, but really pretty militant in the beginning of college. And also, um, you know, very insecure about my body image and feeling like there's no way I could compare to those women. And if you're looking at those women, obviously, you don't care about me and all that crap. So it kind of built into all that. But what made it even worse was... I kind of went over to the bed and just was kind of looking and there was a yellow, small yellow lined pad of paper on the bed and in his handwriting, which I knew was his handwriting, was written this pornographic story that was so disturbing. I actually kept it for a while and it was a story that he wrote that involved him being sexual with each of my two younger sisters, so one of them was, I would say, let's see, I, if I was 19, she was. there was one that was 17, and one that was 12, and both of them were in this story, as well as my mother. My mother, my boyfriend was well, be, writing. Be a, to, f- to be fair, you can't leave mom out. You can't leave mom out, I know. But guess who was left out? You. I was left out. Uh, there was nothing sexual about me in there, which he later explained to me, you know, tearfully as I am the only healthy thing in his life. And sexually, that's why I wasn't part of that story. Okay. But to see that, to see your boyfriend clearly having these sexual fantasies and, you know, thinking about your little sisters who he has met many times. And my mom, who he has also met, was um, incredibly disturbing and really, I mean, it just made me feel horrible. It made me feel like clearly I am not enough. Clearly I'm, there's something wrong and there's something wrong with me and there's obviously something wrong with him. And I was just so shaken i was really shaken and i didn't really know what to do um but thankfully my mom lived about 20 minutes away and i ended up just i was just sobbing and i just called my mom this was before cell phones so you know i had to use his phone and call her and say mom i'm i'm coming home um and she didn't even know that i was in town but of course she said you know thankfully of course she said you know of course come home but then i had to tell my mom what was going on because i I can't hide my feelings. I was never good at that. And so I was sobbing. And I also, I didn't really tell her everything, but I told her a little bit of what had happened. And I had actually taken that yellow piece of paper with me. I'm not sure why, except for I guess I wanted proof or something, or just to be reminded about how horrible it was and not to forget. 
Um, but that was not a good decision on my part. Um, but I, I ended up going home. I did call him. And of course he was, of course, understandably horrified. And, um, you know, the next, I think it was the next day he came over and he was sobbing and upset. And I mean, he clearly had mental and emotional problems. And apparently some of that pornography, I think was not legal. Like, I think there were potentially younger girls in some of that pornography. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I th- I mean, he had a problem. He definitely had a problem. He was obviously had an addiction issue. He had several addiction issues. And this, uh, this would be a good time to, uh, to pause and mention, you know, one of the things that I, that I stress on this podcast all the time is your thoughts. Um, don't, you can't judge yourself by your thoughts and the things that pop into your head. And we have no control over what we're, what we're turned on by but what we do have control over is what we do with those thoughts and feelings and um this guy sounds to me like instead of saying hey this is you know these are thoughts that that make me uh uncomfortable because they're you know they're asocial and people would certainly judge me if they knew you know instead of taking it maybe to a therapist or talking with a, a a close friend and kind of letting the steam out he decided to kind of keep it to himself and feed it yeah which in private in private which yeah. is that to me is where the problem begins yeah and for me it was the lying because i then thought back to myself i felt like such an idiot because i had on two occasions that i could remember I had seen him and his eyes were red. He was clearly stoned. And, but I was kind of naive. I wasn't that experienced with people who did a lot of drugs or even many drugs, you know. And so I thought he looked stoned, but, and I even asked him to his face. He said, oh, no, no, I'm just, my eyes must be irritated. And clearly he was lying. So I didn't, I didn't really, hadn't really trusted my own judgment. And then I really felt like an idiot, especially. You know, I'm a strong woman and I I am a feminist and I I do generally um, believe in my impressions and things, but I really didn't in that case. And I felt stupid and I felt really tricked. And I f- being lied to is still one of the things that I'm really sensitive about and having information kept from me. And that particular event was one of the, a few life events where I really felt completely ambushed like I just I had no idea I did not see that coming at all and then I just felt like an idiot like what was I missing what didn't I see you know so it kind of brought up trust issues that I still kind of struggle with yeah and and I would imagine you know a part of him probably also felt uh, violated isn't the right word but the the snooping that you did, it, it it came from a good place. You were trying to surprise him. You didn't go there with the intent of, I don't trust him. I'm going to no, look for this stuff. No, I totally went just yes. to like, I you know brought my lingerie and I was going to be there when he got home. And yeah. I mean, it was just a shock. But then, but then, yeah, I got really upset. And then I was like, what, what the hell else is around here? You know, I would imagine that any other person in that situation, once you see the first lie, 
you would be compelled to keep looking to see what else is yeah. there. But in in his defense, that is his stuff. That is his his privacy. It there's so much gray area with yeah. this with this uh, you know where his privacy begin where does it end you know what what's right what's what's wrong and that's one of the things i like about this story is it's it's very complicated um and how did you how did you that this is the part that i couldn't believe that you had not told me was you decided to stay with him i did yeah well i wasn't proud of it and i oh so weird we're going to uh, take a pause in the interview right there to give our, our sponsor some love. Leave you with that cliffhanger. Um, our sponsor is Hover.com. Are you looking to register a new domain? Do you want to do it hassle-free and for a small fee? Well, the domain registration and email management site Hover, that's spelled H-O-V-E-R, believes that everyone should have full control of their online identity. Hover takes all the hassle and friction out of owning and managing domain names with their clean, powerful, easy-to-use tools. With Hover, you'll avoid the heavy-handed upselling and aggressive cross-selling that other companies subject you to. Features like who is privacy, URL forwarding, and subdomains are included in your domain registration, so you don't have to worry about extra charges, and Hover only offers services that enhance the domain name experience. So, Along with your choice of domain, you can create a simple, memorable email address. No more impersonal webmail addresses. They're impossible to recall. So hook up with Hover for a low-cost, completely stress-free registration process. It takes only seconds to secure your corner of the internet and start using your account. So once you're good to go, Hover offers, and this is the part that I think is awesome, they offer a no-hold, no-wait, and no-transfer phone and online support and tutorials. So you talk to actual people who have actual answers. Imagine that. So head on over to www.hover.com slash mental to start enjoying the benefits of Hover today. You'll get 10% off your entire purchase with the URL. That's 10% off. the fuck more do you want? Hover.com slash mental. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring the show, and um, we'd appreciate it if you guys, the listeners, would uh, would give Hover some uh, some love. All right, now back to our uh, our chat with Allie Handel. So we were broken up for a couple weeks, you know, but like what I was said, he saying to you? He was during saying this time? he was crying. I mean, he was legitimately upset, and he was a to me. He had been a wonderful guy. He had treated me really well. And I do believe that he loved me. I do think it was complicated. And I do think he had problems that he wasn't comfortable talking about. Um, So when I found out about them in the way that I did, I did listen to him. But, I mean, like, now I don't think I would give somebody like that a second chance, if only because I've been through it and I know I couldn't really. Because what happened was, yeah, we did break up and then we kind of got back together but then, like, I basically made him, I said, look, I, I don't trust you. You have to come to L.A. If you want to stay with me, you have to come to L.A. and live with me. Like, I don't trust you out of my sight, now, pretty much. Now, what made you s- I don't say, know. I want this guy closer <laughs> to me? I don't know. I think it was because I was 19, and I just... Thought you could fix him? 
I don't know if I thought I could. I mean, I must have thought I could fix him or he could fix himself. But the thing was, I would. Oh, go ahead. Ask a question. Well, well, yeah, it's just what was going through your brain? But I loved him. I guess maybe that. I don't know. Was it that you needed him or he needed you or both? I think it was both because I did feel like, I mean, he he seemed genuinely sorry and like genuinely. And we went to therapy together. Um, But honestly, with the trust breached that badly and in that way, there was no way that it was going to work. And what I ended up doing was, you know, he moved in with me for a while and I made his life miserable. I was a complete bitch to him. And I, because I was punishing him and there was no way I could forgive him. And I just, now I wouldn't take somebody back after that kind of trust breach if only because, not necessarily because they don't deserve it, but because if I really felt that violated, I just, if I, if I don't think I could forgive somebody, I just, there's no point. Do you think a part of you wanted to elongate that experience because there's a certain satisfaction you get from being morally right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm sure. I wanted to hurt him. Yeah, I wanted, and then in fact, we lived in an apartment building, and when we finally broke up, because it was just so clearly not ever going to work, I started dating someone who lived like across the hall in the apartment building and kind of flaunting in his face. I mean, it was pretty bad. You know, it was not very nice. But I felt so hurt that I just, I was out to really hurt him. And I, I don't know if it was even possible to hurt him as much as I had felt hurt, but because it wasn't as much of a surprise to him. Like, to me, it was that shock of, like, I thought I knew you, you know, and then... Um, Do you think it was, it was conscious in you wanting him to come to L.A. and live with you so that you could kind of then be be in the role of the person who has the high ground and relish that? Do you think that I was... I don't think it was that conscious, yeah. no. I, I wouldn't think I so. really wanted to to make it work but just looking back i think it, there was definitely a lot of self-righteousness and but i but i think it from my standpoint then it was more like you hurt me so much you need to show me how much you love me you need to you know you owe it to me you really hurt me so now start making it up to me but there was nothing he could do there was nothing he could do to make it up and I mean, how could you ever be comfortable around your family with him I don't know. No, I couldn't. I couldn't even now. Oh, so I didn't even tell you the last part of the story, which is horrible. So uh, uh, several months after this whole incident happened, my mom called me in a panic. And she said that my little sister had been playing in my room and opened the bottom drawer and she found that yellow piece of paper my sister's like 12 years old. She was playing with a friend and showed it to my mom and was like, what is this? And I just, I was horrified. Like I, cause I'd left it in my room oh my that God. weekend. My little sister found it and then my mom saw it. So they both read it. I, I don't have it anymore. I think they burned it, but like, I can't believe that was horrible judgment on my part to even leave it there. And horrible might not be strong enough of it. Uh, yeah. of it. <laughs> horrible. Well, of course, I didn't expect my sister to be playing in my room. Like, no. it was still my room. Just but like, like I didn't expect you oh to Oh, my come. God, I know. Like, I get kind of, yeah, it was really bad. Yeah. What uh, pornography lessons are we oh, learning here I today? I know, it's terrible. Yeah. Lock and key. Hide your stash. 
Uh, that must have been incredibly disturbing to both your oh mother. Oh, my God. And, did they and to me, I was humiliated. I couldn't because, believe it. Because they probably thought you kept it for the wrong reason. They probably thought you kept it because you enjoyed it. No, no, they didn't think that. <laughs> I don't think they thought that. No, my, well, why, my mom. Why would they think you had it, though? I think, uh, I don't think they thought that I enjoyed it. I think they knew how disturbed I was. I think just, I mean, I, I don't even know why I kept it. I think it was just some sort of proof. Because it was so weird. You know, I took him back. So, like, I think I felt like I, even though I hadn't taken him back at that moment, I think I somehow felt like I needed to be reminded, like, this sh- shitty thing that he did. Almost you like know? a weapon that you could use in the future. Totally. If, but I never did. I left it. I should have taken it back to L.A. with me. But part of me didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so I think I, I had it, but I didn't really have it. And then, unfortunately, my poor little sister found it, which is horrible. Um, yeah, and I felt I mean, I, my stomach just, oh my God, I, when my mom told me that, I was just, I just was so, I was so distraught, but. Uh. Did your, the, the boyfriend, do you remember your therapy sessions with him? What did the therapist say about this, this part of him? I honestly don't remember what she said. I don't really remember, you know, uh, I think I was so caught up in my own hurt. I, I wasn't. You know, I know I'm I'm sure we talked about that he didn't do it to me, but I don't think that really What nineteen year old girl isn't gonna take that personally? No, I took it incredibly personally. Yeah. yeah. I, I think almost any age what person isn't gonna take that personally. Yeah, well especially I mean it's not just the little pornography pictures, it was the story about my mom and my sisters but not me. I think that yeah. was the thing that was just mind-blowing you know i mean just to read a sex story i mean i don't remember the particular was, words but it was just gross I'm, I'm reminded of a joke that bobby slayton does is he said uh, my wife says i want you to tell me all your fantasies and i said why you're not in them oh yeah that's the kind of thing you just keep to yourself yeah. you keep it to yourself yeah you know? um so he moves in and what what was the next major shift in and the relationship with him that that you remember was I, it just constant fighting and it wasn't really constant fighting but it was a constant me like cold war kind of thing i was just i was cold and i was just mean pretty much most of the time i, I, don't, I don't even know if mean is the right word but just you know that Reserve. air resentful yeah. and disappointed and angry passive aggressive very 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 passive aggressive i mean the whole thing of having him move in was passive aggressive but i thought i was giving us another chance like i was like the, this is the only way i can try to trust you but it, looking back i mean it was just i don't even i must have been very needy to have a relationship because I mean, now I look back and I go, gosh, there's so many other men out there. Why, why did you do that? You know? It's amazing though. When we're, when we're in our low self-esteem, we, we believe that nobody else will love us sometimes. Yeah. That this is, this is our, our last chance and we got to make this work and it was meant to be or whatever. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what was growing up in your house? What was, what was kind of the, what were the dynamics kind of at work what do you what, what are some seminal moments from your childhood that you remember thinking or feeling or things happening well you know i i was raised um by my mom and dad for my first mm, 15 years um and then they got separated and one of the seminal moments was finding out that my parents were separating because um 
at the time, not many people were divorced, and I was kind of proud that my parents weren't divorced, and I had never heard them fight. And when I mentioned before that the this incident with the ex-boyfriend kind of shocked me, this was another thing that really shocked me, and that had shocked me, um, you know, I guess four years prior, was my parents telling us, my sisters and I, that they were getting separated. And I was dumbfounded. I was shocked. I, I had once heard them fighting behind a closed door. Literally, that was it. It had been like a month or two before that. I was completely shocked that they were going to split up. Were they uh, ever outwardly affectionate towards each other? I think so. Yeah, they were. Um, you know, my dad traveled a lot for business. He was a, um, an entre- entrepreneur, I guess, a business owner. And he traveled a lot. Um, he ran a lot. He was a marathon runner earlier on in life and ran a lot. And my mom had a lot of resentment towards him being gone, both for business and f- and with his running habit. And um, and then I think the more resentful she got, I think the more he ran, <laughs> you know, that kind yeah. of dynamic. And, um, but I didn't, I wasn't outwardly aware of that stuff. I think I picked up a lot of that underneath subconsciously. And I think I even play out a lot of that stuff in my, you know, relationships now. But back then I didn't, I didn't realize that was happening. And I I was just shocked that my, my dad was going to move out and I was incredibly sad. Yeah, that you know, must be devastating for a kid. It was horrible. I was 15 years old and, you know, um, I acted out the way most 15-year-old girls act out, which was, you know, I started having a lot of boyfriends and, you know, I was precocious, you know, sexually, you know, more than acting out any other way. I mean, I was, I was a straight-A student all through high school and college and uh, very, very hard on myself and perfectionist, that kind of thing. But the and I didn't do drugs and I barely ever drank. I mean, I was kind of a good girl, except for you know I really liked boys. That was my one way. and and heavy metal. <laughs> Those are my two ways of rebelling. You know. Yeah, it seems like music is such a perfect fit for um, that that type of personality the perfectionist because you can just practice over and over and over again and yeah. you can set goals and you can drive yourself hard yeah uh, at, at what point in your life did did music become um a part of um well i was always raised with music like my dad lo- my parents both love music my dad especially um he is a musician not professionally but you know he played i think french horn in the Coast Guard and um, you know he exposed us to great music growing up uh, Dylan and the Beatles and Carol King and you know a lot of the music that I grew up listening to um, my dad introduced me to and he's still really passionate about music I still share music with him today um, and I started taking piano lessons when I was a kid like a lot of kids um, and then when I was 12 I discovered the guitar and Led Zeppelin and I was like screw this piano stuff this is i want to be oh, cool yeah. you, you know <laughs> first time you hear a whole lot of love yeah exactly it's so sexy sexy you know oh, yeah. and like you know it's just the, the coolest thing ever and i just wanted to be jimmy page and i still do you know yeah he was a god oh, was a kid. yeah definitely um so so that you know age 12 was when i really got into it and um really you know i was really into hard rock and metal and and classic rock and all that kind of stuff and all the really guitar heavy groups you know that's what i kind of learned how to play and what what do you remember when you began to have some proficiency on the guitar what do you remember thinking or feeling when you would pick the guitar up 
I loved it, but I had a lot of self-doubting. A lot of, I don't know if I would say anxiety, but well, yeah, probably anxiety. Um, Did you know any other female guitarists? No, but I actually, it's really weird. I, I found this um, piece of paper that uh, um, my mom, I think, met some woman. She was a female musician. I'm not sure if she was a guitar player. Um, but she, my mom, like, introduced me to this woman. She brought her over to the house, and this woman wrote out on two two sides of paper all of this advice for me that I still have and it's really? really cool I just found it when I was up at my mom's a couple weeks ago and um, and some there there was some advice on there that was just so great um, just like don't let you know you know being a woman has nothing to do with your musical ability don't let any, don't let that stop you or be a reason for anything you know just just do your best practice give your best effort and don't make excuses just play you know i think because i think i was getting ready to audition for some sort of band or something i was Mm -hmm. very nervous um but i didn't really know her i just kind of met her but i i didn't really know any other female guitar players and i certainly i mean i didn't know any professional musicians i didn't grow up thinking that that was actually a viable career choice it was more of like this is a hobby this is what you do but so I didn't, you know, and being such a good student, I just, I wasn't anything like my role model. So I really didn't believe that that is something that I could do for a very long time. You know, so I had so no self-confidence in that respect. But you were doing it for the love of it still. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I loved it. Now, know? when you would get together and jam with a group of other musicians, was it guys in your high school? Uh, I didn't really do that. Really? I didn't really get together and jam with people. I took lessons, and I played mostly by myself and learned Metallica songs and whatever. Um, but I would go out. I saw every single concert that came through town, every rock. And I still have all of my ticket stubs. And I, you know, I, and I had friends that I would go see the shows with, but... I didn't have the confidence to play in front of people. And, you know, I was very, very um, judgmental of my playing, and I didn't think it was very good because I wasn't compared to Jimmy Page. So I, I. Such a perfectionist. Yeah, it was horrible. I really stopped myself from and you growing. And the reality is, to the average guitar playing high schooler, you would have blown people's minds, I bet. Probably. If I, but, but, you know, I didn't have the confidence. You know, a lot of it in playing any kind of performing at all is confidence. Like you can play three notes and sound fantastic if you just put everything you've got into it. But I was so like judgy of myself that, oh, I'm only playing three notes and that's just not, because you know, I grew up in that era of like Yngwie and Eddie Van Halen and like obviously I could not do that, you know, at that point. And therefore I didn't, and I didn't value, say, some of these amazing blues players who I love now who can play three notes and just make them sing. Yeah. You know, and I didn't really have that viewpoint. So I just thought, well, whatever I can do, it's not worth anything. So nobody, I shouldn't play for anybody until I can blow their minds. And so. And when was that? Years and years later. Like, uh, you know, I, I quit playing several times, actually. Um, in college, you know, I quit playing and I dated like every guitar player I could meet, you know. And I finally, at the, you know, I was like, I was in, I was at UCLA. I, I had uh, transferred to UCLA to get my um, bachelor's degree. And at that point. In music? Um, well, I started in music and psychology, but when, um, after my first two years at Occidental College as, as a music major, um, I was a voice major singing opera, and I got nodules. So I had to stop singing. And so I stopped singing for a year, 
And, and that was the year when that ex-boyfriend moved down and, you know, we lived together and then broke up. And then I went to UCLA and I had to choose between music and psychology. At the time, they wouldn't let me double major in those two um, schools. So I chose psychology because I didn't know what my voice was going to be like. And I didn't even take a music class at UCLA, which, you know, is such a bummer now. But I ended up delving into the honors program and I was going to get a PhD and I was going to go, you know, I wrote a research paper and blah, blah, blah. And my last year of school, I was so miserable, like writing this thesis, you know, and I just realized, like, I moved to L.A. for college because Guns N' Roses was here. Like, literally, that's why I went to college in L.A. That, and what am I doing? I'm dating guitar players. And I'm unhappy and I'm not playing the guitar because I think that I suck. And what am I doing with my life? And I decided I was going to finish, get my degree, and then I was going to pursue music. And that's what I did. And, you know, stop dating all these guys who actually, they're, they're who I really wanted to be. That's what my, my wife always says. Is she says uh, women fuck who they want to be. It was so true. It was so true for me for most of my life. It was so true. And now, I mean, I'm, I'm married to a magician who is amazing. I don't want to be a magician, but he's also an amazing guitar player. But, but um, yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's really, really true. And, you know, I always prided myself for not being a groupie, always. Like, I met Axel, you know, back when I first moved to L.A. And, you know, all these women were saying, oh, will you please sign my rack and all this stuff. It was backstage after a show. And I just was like, you know. I was very proud of myself for going, you know, even though I thought he was totally hot. I was just like, oh, you know, I, I really love your music. And I just I just wanted to shake your hand and thank you so much. And he was very nice. He was a gentleman. And I just was so proud of myself for not, you know, even though I totally, you know, would have loved to have slept with him. I just I didn't want to be that chick. You know, I wanted to be kind of more than that because I think anybody can be that that chick to a certain degree and I just I wanted to feel more special which I think is why I wanted to be a great lead guitar player because there weren't many women at that time who were doing that and I I felt like it was a way that I could be different and I could be special and I really wanted to tweak with people's expectations and I thought it was cool yeah I would imagine too if you're one of those women that uses their sex to to meet somebody and they can make an incredible first impression and yeah you can yeah. get the guy to sleep with you but what then what what happens on day two you're still left with that neediness inside you and you are going to be thirsting for attention from that person that they will probably never give be able to give you enough of especially if they're a rock star um <laughs> because that and this sounds so corny, but it's fucking true, is unless you feel good about yourself, nobody will ever be able to give you enough attention. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, and I don't, I don't, I don't think, I think it was even, it was true no matter what way you make yourself special, because if you're just trying to make yourself special by learning a skill like lead guitar and, and you're still not feeling special, I think that you're still going to run into that trap. But the Absolutely. thing that's good is that 10, 15, 20 years down the road, when you do lose your looks, because everybody does, you're going to have something that, that say the women who only are getting by on their looks will not have. And that, I mean, it's kind of like why I love female comedians and why, why I just tend to love women and get along with women who aren't, 
necessarily the most beautiful women in the world because they were forced to develop a personality. I think it's true of guys too. And I love people who actually have a personality and who've worked their asses off to become great at something. That, that's why I love living in LA. There's so many people like that here. And it's always interesting when you meet somebody that has a great personality that's funny, that's really good looking. It's like, wow, you didn't have to do yeah, that. Yeah, why did you do that? You that's went <laughs> out and raked the yard. How did you do that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you do you remember like feelings you had when you were a kid of like what you felt was missing from your life like what you longed for you know was it the attention of your father was it the attention of boys was it to be special to be recognized what 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 do you remember You know I don't remember I've tried to figure this out because I feel like there must be something like that but I don't I don't remember feeling like, oh, I need to make my parents pay attention to me or, you know, but where did that overachievement come from? And I don't, you know, my parents always said, just try your best. They really did just say that. However, the way I interpreted that was, well, I better work myself to the bone and, you know, get straight A's because I'm capable of it. That means I have to work my ass off and maybe not play as much or whatever. Whereas I think other people maybe would take try your best as like, okay, try a reasonable amount. And, you know, I didn't. Actually, I'm just, I think one of the things that really played into it, and it's kind of weird, and it really has nothing to do with my parents, but I was born in New York, and I moved to California when I was like 12, and I moved to um, a place, went to Happy Valley School, and I moved into this, I I had come from a middle school, but went back to primary school because of the way that the schools were different. I'd come from fifth grade, and then when I was in California, came into sixth grade, which was the last year of primary school, and... In this primary school, I had, I guess I had not been tested with all the other kids years before for the gifted and talented program, but all my friends were in gifted and talented and I wasn't. And I think I felt very insecure about that. So I worked really hard to do really well. And I think I always felt like maybe I wasn't as smart as everybody else. And now I know that's not even true, but I think I felt like that for so many years in school that I just believed it and I I really worked really hard and I saw that when I worked really hard I got straight A's so I wouldn't dare not do that because I I think I was I was a, I felt like my report card reflected some inner thing about me and if it wasn't straight A's then there's something wrong with me what are what are some negative thoughts that you commonly have towards yourself I'm um, a failure you know my music career I'm not I'm not yet Jimmy Page, you know. Um, that's kind of the biggest one. I'm not, I'm not as successful as I should be. Even though you're supporting yourself from playing, yeah, from playing music, I also I do a lot of different things within music um, to earn money. You know, I'm an entrepreneur as well, so um, it's not solely from selling records and. Um, touring, so I think to, in, to me it'd be like if I were on tour all the time and I had a big manager and all this, you know, those things that are kind of at the next level, then I would be successful. And, and it's it, never quite enough. It's never enough. It never is, and yeah. you will always find. You will always then put that next rung on the ladder and say that will be that will be my success. I remember hearing Lenny Kravitz be interviewed about something and, and he was saying how he always scans the crowd to look for black people because there's not enough black people it is. And I thought, oh. it's not enough. It's not wow. enough that he's got a but stadium full of people him. cheering for him. It's his crowds to 
to wow. white. There, there, your ego will always find something to cut the legs out from underneath your success. And until you say, hey, this fucking war is over. I declare it over. I mm. am successful. I've got food on the table. I've got a roof over my head. I have friends who love me. I, I am yeah. successful. Until you decide to do that, that thing just keeps coming up with shit and yeah it and does. it's there yeah. every fucking day yeah every and, fucking day and, and it's yeah. so believable you go on with facebook oh my god you see like what your friend i have a, i have a friend who right now she's amazing and i absolutely adore her she's on tour uh with jason morass right now playing in his band and rollingstone.com is doing a photo essay of them and i'm like Oh my God, that's so amazing. And on the other side, I'm like, Oh, I'm so jealous, you know, and it's, it's, you know, you see and, that and, and, you and tell people yourself. do that with me too. Like I get, you know, I, I've had friends tell me, God, I'm so jealous when I see what you're doing. And it's even though I love you and I want the best for you, it's that kind of mixture that I think a lot of performers feel. And, and, you know, I'm friends with people who I just, think are amazing musicians i have some incredibly talented friends and so of course they're going to be doing really awesome things and they have opportunities that i don't have and i have opportunities they don't have so it's you know it's that <laughs> and, and the lie and the lie in our brains is that if we get that our anxiety is going to go away and it and it yeah. never does yeah it never does right yeah because there's always somebody who's doing more yeah pretty much yeah yeah that's true and it's nice sometimes when you can remember what you were thinking when you were a teenager, what you were thinking when you were 13 years yeah. old, and look at your life now and say, hey, what? where have I been? What have I experienced that that little kid wanted to experience? And sometimes I'll do that and go, wow, I got to see Europe. I've been on a TV show. You know, yeah. I did this. I've been with the same woman for 24, almost 25 years. Wow. These are things yeah. I should be proud of. Definitely. Uh, you know, have I yeah. made mistakes? Absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff I would I would like uh, to take back. Things I would like to do differently, but um, you know, we can't. So how how, yeah. how can we embrace it today and be okay with it? So that 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 voice, that darkness. Yeah, and I have such I have such a strong voice like uh, inner talk, like mean talk talk more about that oh my be my, that, be my that, inner voice is a complete bitch <laughs> she's so mean to me <laughs> be that assume that voice right now right right now yeah um let's see if i i'm in a good mood right now so it's harder to get in touch with her but but just like oh yeah you know you you know you think these good things are happening but you know you better capitalize on it while you can because people don't you know people just you know, some people like you, but you really, you're not ever going to do better than you've done before. And you're, you know, look how old you are. You're never going to be, you know, a rock star. You're never going to do the things that you really wanted to do. And look, you know, you know, you're on your own as an independent artist and, you know, nobody wants to, you know, there's a reason why you're not more successful than you are. You know, you must not be that talented. It can go on. I could go on for days, you know, um, I've gotten better at kind of shutting her up um and that's also with the help of medication you know that's been a huge huge help what for was me. it what was it like before you went on medication and then what oh so sad i was so sad you know um how old were you then well i've done it twice um i i went on when i was about 10 years ago i went on prozac you know throughout, throughout my tw it's weird because i don't really remember ever being Re I always remember really being hard on myself 
and a perfectionist. And I definitely have had a lot of fun, happy times in my life. But I've always felt an affinity with darkness, really. I mean, I have a kind of obsession with death. and you know, I know exactly what you... I find there's something com- oh, comforting, yeah. There's com- yeah. something comforting about a documentary about serial killers. Oh, my God. I don't That's know- fascinating to me. I'm, well, and I was a psych major, I think, because I am fascinated with... I mean, my uh, most of, a lot of my best friends are kind of depressive, but they're amazing people and amazing artists, and they're deep. They're, there's a depth to that, and I think there's also an appreciation for the happier times because you know how sad you can be. And, and I mean, I've done a lot of work and workshops and different kinds of things to help me kind of become more aware that it's not reality, it's just my voice. But even doing that stuff, I really believe that I have a chemical, some sort of chemical imbalance in my brain because with doing all that work on myself, I still could not drag myself out of being sad and, and miserable in a life that's pretty damn great. That's depression. Depression. It's a, it's a, it can be a prison where it doesn't matter what is on your plate, no matter how good it is, you can't Mm -hmm. feel it. Yeah, I couldn't appreciate it. I couldn't feel, I knew I was supposed to try to cultivate feelings of gratitude. And gratitude does work if you can get there. But I think for some people, and there's, this is something I talk about with my friends, and there's just, and I think musicians don't tend to talk about it, even though there's like, it's acknowledged that musicians are pretty fucked up, you know, emotionally sometimes. Um, I don't think we talk that much about medication and and that there's there I think there's still a huge stigma with that and I wish there weren't because for me it has made me more of who I really am or really can be and who knows maybe you know at first I I resisted it for many years because I thought it was kind of cheating somehow like I should be able to do this on my own such a myth oh I know and but you know how do you really know if it's if you can do it yourself or not you try and you try and if you can't I just think there's nothing wrong with Trying to, yeah, take responsibility for your life and your own happiness because you're the only one who can make you happy. Psych meds don't bring you euphoria. They just bring you out of the basement to the first floor where everybody else is. Yeah, and just to be kind of normal because it's not like I don't get upset or I never cry anymore. I don't feel bad feelings. But now I just, I'm a lot nicer to myself and I don't beat myself up constantly. You know, and it's, I mean, I really knew that I needed it just because I was just constantly miserable. And, and it's weird because I, I don't have a depression like some of my friends in that I was, I never had a problem working ever. I, because I guess of the workaholism and the, you know, tendency to tell myself I'm a failure or whatever, I would just get up and work and work and work. But I was hating myself and I was, and there were no good reasons for it. It wasn't like there were these horrible things happening. It was just my view of life was black. It was just black and I could not drag myself out of it no matter what. And and I, I think something else that just kind of made me think that it was probably chemistry is that, you know, alcoholism runs in my family and I just don't have any of those substance problems, you know. But is I think that work, I is work your your drug maybe. maybe I mean I don't think so. My husband's probably thinking it is. <laughs> but Andrew, Andrew, are you what? What do you think? <laughs> is work uh, is work drug like for her? Would you say? Does it look to you like work is drug like for her? There are times I, I think when it can be, and 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes I get a lot of satisfaction out of just, well, I get a lot of satisfaction out of getting things done. That's for sure. But, um, which I think is healthy. Yeah. And I mean, I definitely have substance issues. Like, I definitely have food and body issues. I mean, like almost every woman that I know. But, um, but I haven't had a problem with it, with things like alcohol or, or drugs interfering with my functioning. You know, or even food. Have you ever mm. uh, engaged in uh, anorexic behavior or cutting? Not cutting. When I was younger, um, when I took my year off of college, I, well, you know, I've always had body image issues, always. Um, I was, I think I was vegan at the time, and I was just, my diet was terrible. I mean, but I was like living on like frozen yogurt and bran muffins and stuff. But, and I was dancing like three hours a day, taking dance classes, which I just, I love to dance. Um, but I remember getting down to like a hundred pounds, which is quite a bit thinner than I am now. And I'm in pretty good shape right now. But I remember my mom was concerned and my mom's pretty thin herself, you know, and she's very aware of you know, that kind of thing, which I'm sure is where I picked, picked a lot of it up from. But I remember her expressing how worried she was about me. And looking back at pictures, I looked disgusting. My skin was kind of yellow. I was so, I was never happier about my body. I was so proud of myself. But now when I look back, I was just like kind of disgusted. My ribs were showing, you know, but I thought it was really great. And I was, you know, I did a little bit of modeling and, you know, like, cause I can't at a normal weight, you know, <laughs> like it's just, it's so, that's what was so messed up is that's when I was dancing. And that's what, you know, when I felt beautiful was when I was pretty underweight. I watched know? a documentary where they followed, uh, six models, mm. uh, around in various points in their career from ones yeah. just starting out to ones that were very successful. And every single model disliked her body. Yeah. Their friends would tell them that they had great bodies. They yeah. would tell their friends they had great yeah. bodies. And they didn't know of a single model who liked her body. Yeah, I don't really know of many women who like their bodies. I mean, I, as I've gotten older, I've definitely come to like my body more. Um, and I've come to know what I need to do in order to kind of have the body that I want, but it's not necessarily healthy. You know, it's not, you know, like in order to have the body I want, I would really need to exercise probably about three hours a day and, and not eat a whole lot and be basically be hungry most of the time. Oh. But that's, but that's, but that's what, and I don't necessarily do that, but I'm kind of a middle ground between that and something totally kind of what a doctor would say is normal and healthy but i, would, I but i'm pretty religious about the exercise i was i was just saying uh because uh three hours a day just isn't enough <laughs> are you but when i dance that's you're two gonna, dance classes you're gonna look like a yeah. blimp unless yeah. you get out there five hours <laughs> five hours uh, but yeah but it's like if you want to have a life i mean i just kind of finally had to reconcile like you know i want to have a life and i want to be a great musician and i want to have a a relationship with my husband it's like you can't be that extreme and have all those different things but um but yeah i definitely can tend towards extremes for sure yeah so what are what are the battles you're now on medication yeah and it's great i love it what, <laughs> it makes what, me so much happier <laughs> good and and I'm, and I'm glad that that you found something that works for you because yeah. medication doesn't work for some people and uh for others, it's a lifesaver. I know for me, it's an absolute, absolute lifesaver. Um, what, do, what do you take now? Cymbalta. Yeah. And 
are there any, any side effects to it that uh... yeah it makes me tired so i take it at night um and i've actually kind of just started last month or so drinking like coffee which i never did before but i find that it's also a really great mood enhancer but i guess i'm slightly addicted because i'm really look forward to my one latte every day you know i really love it it's my little treat you know <laughs> Me too. yeah so that's my my thing i guess but it does help with the fatigue because i i know if i if i take that drug in the morning by the afternoon i will literally i have to take a nap i cannot function I have to sleep so it's pretty strong but other than that it's pretty great do you feel like doing a uh, a fear off? Oh yeah, let's do it. Fear off. I could have gone on for days with these, by the way. But <laughs> all right. So going into what, what what we were just talking about, I'm afraid that um, the antidepressants is working for me so well now. Someday it's going to stop working. Uh, I'm going to be reading the, the fears of a listener named Lauren. Uh, I'm actually continuing a list that uh, that she had done. Uh, she says, I'm afraid that I will accidentally mock someone's favorite beer and thus drive away someone who should have been a love of my life. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm afraid, while well, we're on beverages, um, I'm afraid that one or all of the things that I do to try to stay thin are going to kill me, like all the Diet Coke I've drank and the Splenda and all that stuff. Uh, I'm afraid that I'll make a big mistake at work and be fired summarily. Hmm. This one's pretty specific. Um, I'm afraid that while I'm in the kitchen using or putting away a large knife that I'm going to drop the knife and maim my kitty cat who's weaving under my feet. I think about that every time I'm in the kitchen and I'm handling a knife. I do too. (laughs) Or if I'm moving something heavy around the house, I'm always like, oh, you know, the littlest one's going to come right underneath it and something's going to break and fall right on his head. Yeah. Lawrence says, I'm afraid that because I haven't really changed my behavior since discovering that I have high cholesterol, that I will become uninsurable. Hmm. I'm afraid I'll send a confidential email to the wrong person. (laughs) That just makes me sick just thinking about it. (laughs) I'm afraid that my unfamiliarity with the fine distinctions of cultural nuance will get me raped or otherwise badly physically hurt on my upcoming trip to another country. Oh. I'm afraid I'll slip and fall down the stairs in my condo. Uh, I'm afraid that my eating habits will dis- disgust someone I'm on a date with. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid that if I ever get to go on a date again, I will bore the person to death with video game talk. <laughs> mm. um, I'm afraid I won't get to spend a lot more time with my dad because I only see him about once a year. I'm afraid that my male coworkers think I'm coming on to them when I try to talk about baseball. I'm afraid that when my niece and nephews grow older, I'll no longer be the cool aunt. I'm afraid that my coworkers all dislike me and believe that I slack off too much. Uh, I'm afraid I won't have enough money to take care of myself when I'm old and unable to work. Boy, do I have that one. Hmm. Uh, I'm afraid that the reason a work project isn't working is solely due to my incompetence and that our company will shut down because my boss has misplaced faith in my abilities. I'm afraid I'll run out of time and not be able to complete all the musical project ideas that I have in my head. I'm horribly afraid of ticks. Ticks? Ticks. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, and scorpions, she adds. Oh, all right. The band. Um, (laughs) She doesn't like the name Shanker. (laughs) That's right. By the way, is there a greater lead guitarist from the late 70s, early 80s than Michael Shanker? I don't know. I mean... 
There's so many the lead great from, ones. The lead from Too Hot to Handle. I, I dare you <laughs> to come up with another lead song. All right, I'm going to have to think about Between it. 1975 and 1982, that is better than the lead to that. All right, I'll have to do my homework. Um, I'm afraid of being in constant pain when I'm old. Uh, oh, that's it for now, she says, and thank you for giving me a safe place to spew some of my bile. Oh. Uh, now I'm going to finish a subpar IPA and shoot some zombies on my PS3. Cheers. Nice. Uh, She's she didn't say that she was afraid of zombies. She didn't. No. Um, what? To, let, let's do a, a couple more of your fears. Um, I'm afraid I'll outlive my husband, and I'm also afraid my husband will outlive me, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of a lose lose situation. You're either way, I know, <laughs> or not. How many do you have left? Um, just a couple. Okay. Um, I'm afraid of having nobody to help me when I'm old since I don't have kids and don't want them. Um, I'm afraid of being disappointed that I didn't live my ultimate dream life. That's pretty much it. Those are great. Oh, thank those are you. great. And I relate to so many of those. You know, yeah. if I stopped the show every time somebody said a fear that I related to, the, the show would be three hours long. Yeah. And but, I feel like that when I listen to people on the show too. And there's so many, like, oh, that's such a good one. I didn't think that one. And you know? sometimes you don't even know that's your fear. It's just a vague feeling in mm-hmm. your chest. But literally the other, the one other fear that I forgot to write down is I'm afraid that all of my fears, thinking about my fears is going to make me sick. Like the yes. whole, like the fact that I believe that it's going to make me sick is going to make me sick. Exactly. Oh, it's, it's all convoluted. It's the, it's the ego, man. It <laughs> is a genius. It is a sick genius. Uh, okay. Let's, let's go into the love off and I'm going to be reading, uh, uh, listener loves or Facebook, uh, loves. I started a thread on Facebook, so I'll be reading, um, various people's loves. You want to start? Sure. Um, I love winding down in front of Breaking Bad and a big bowl of buttered popcorn with my two purring kitty cats. Oh, my God. I have the same thing, but it's with a uh, pizza. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sunday night, sitting down with a pizza and a cup of tea and watching Breaking nice. Bad is my favorite thing show. in the world. Oh, yeah. my God. I'm going to be so sad when that show's gone. Well, and I'm not caught up. I, I've, I've watched it on Netflix. I watched the first three seasons, so I would be watching, like, two and three episodes a night it just oh i just love it so much i was that way with the walking dead and i just loved i would watch like four per night and then when i caught up i was like oh this sucks now i know i know uh dean battino says i love when i mention something about politics while talking with a new person and it doesn't awkwardly end the conversation (laughs) um i love discovering amazing music that's new to me Jeremy Claybaugh says, I love smiling at a beautiful girl and getting one in return. Hmm. I love chick bonding. Uh, Dean says, I love the piano solo in Art Blakey's Monin. Uh, I love the feeling I get when I finish writing a really great song. Uh, Dean says, I love listening for the subtle variations in the bass line of Funkin' Teleki. Hmm. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, I've now uh, revealed that I'm musically unhip because I don't know. No, I'm not sure what that one was either. Um, I love peanut butter vanilla ice cream. Um, Jerry Lewis says, uh, (laughs) I love it when they bring me my order and it's actually what I ordered. That's a good simple one. That is a good one. (laughs) Um, I love kitten videos on YouTube. (laughs) 
Anita Pitts Jansen says, I love the feeling of peeling off a sweaty t-shirt after a long, productive day of yard work. I love taking off my bra right when I get home. <laughs> That's got to feel good. Uh, it feels great. <laughs> uh, that wasn't a planned one. <laughs> the, the closest thing I can come to is saying I like taking off my cup after <laughs> after playing hockey. Um, Balthazar Ricardo Pinedo says, I love listening to my son sing A Love Supreme to himself as he plays. Oh. Wow. It's fucking little kids into a Coltrane. I don't know. Maybe he's not a little kid. Maybe he's an, an, an I would imagine he's an adult if he's playing, playing John Coltrane. Into, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love seeing pictures, um, like super happy pictures of my niece and nephews on Facebook. Uh, Kayla Pennington says, I love playing an online game with my favorite podcast host. I just saw this one. I don't read these in advance. <laughs> she is kicking my ass at Words with Friends. Oh, uh, I haven't played that one yet. Yeah. Oh, it's good. I, I love listening to podcasts while playing solitaire, and I really wish I didn't love it so much because maybe it's that addictive. is an addiction. No, yeah, I don't know how not. to stop that. Uh, Kayla also says, I love watching my daughter play in the pool with her cousin, as I am right now. Hmm. Um, I love when my husband and I enjoy comedy together. Nick Benson says, I love waking up next to a beautiful woman and spending a day at the beach. I love when someone assumes that I'm much younger than I actually am. Uh, Katie Kelly says, I love seeing my dog smile. Hmm. Um, I love when I really nail a smoking guitar solo. That's got to be a good feeling. Oh, it's awesome. Especially, you've got to be really loud, though. Yeah. The, when you have the right tone. Oh, there's, there's nothing, nothing like it. There's yeah. nothing like when you got no. it. Everything is just dialed in. It makes the biggest difference. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever, Are you ever able to get a sound where you enjoy it, how it sounds on the lead, and then without having to change anything, a chord sounds good? Just in terms of um, turning your volume down? Because I usually use a different channel. Yeah. So, uh, not usually. Usually, okay. I need to add... A bit for the yeah. lead, you know. Uh, Jesse Giovinco says, I love snow cones even in winter. Um, I love being able to text my mom and dad now that they have iPhones. Uh, Jesse also says, I love interacting with the wait staff at dinner and making them enjoy coming to my table. I love being friends with so many people whose artistic talents I admire. Isn't that amazing? That is one of the greatest things about living in Los Angeles. It's so awesome. I will, I will yeah. sit in the audience like... You know, watching Jimmy Pardo or Paul F. Tompkins, mm -hmm. or, and I'll think I'm friends with these guys. I know it's this so is cool. amazing that yeah. I am friends with such talented people. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. is that is really cool. Um, Balthazar says, "I love when my wife hugs me from behind, and I love my mom's chilaquiles." Chilaquiles. Mm. I love getting massages, even if they're not very good. <laughs> I just love massages. It's kind of like pizza. And sex. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, Even if it's bad, it's still... An ice cream. It's still, still not, too, pretty good. not too bad. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Jenny Pineo Lopes says, I love when you get to visit an old friend and you just pick up right where you left off. Pretty soon you're laughing hysterically and you feel like you're 16 again. Oh, I love That's that. That's a nice one. I love that too. Um, I love watching my husband perform. I could watch him over and over and over and over, hundreds, and I have, and I'd never get tired of That's it. That's awesome. I love it. That's yeah. really great. Yeah. Uh, Jenny says, uh, I love how music allows you to time travel. That's true. Mm, that's very true. There's nothing like a song that brings you back and you're like, oh my God, I'm 17 again. And yeah. And I feel like I'm just about to ask her to go out with me. Yeah. Is she going to say yes? Yeah. Yeah. Are you out of loves? I'm out of loves. That was, that was, uh, that was lovely. Thank you. It was great fun. 
uh, Allie, thank you so much for, for being a guest. And, Thanks for uh, having me, Paul. Absolutely. And people can check you out at AllieHandle.com. Yep. And um, do you do you have uh, a, a song you could uh, take it out with? And if we have time sure. to, to include it in the podcast, we yeah, will? totally. Okay. Yeah. I should go grab my go acoustic. Grab, yeah. grab your acoustic. Let's see here. I'll move the mic a little bit. Actually, I'm thinking this. Many thanks to uh, to Allie Handel for uh, for such a nice conversation and, uh, and such a beautiful song. Before we take it out with uh, a stack of surveys, I want to remind you guys that if you feel so inclined, there's a couple of different ways that you can support the uh, the show. You can support it financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and uh, making a one time or recurring PayPal donation. The recurring being my favorite because it brings me closer to my dream of uh, supporting myself doing this show. Um, you can also support us financially by um, using our Amazon search portal on the right-hand side of our homepage about halfway down, not to be confused with the search box for our, our website. Um, it, it's a little box that says Amazon uh, on it. And so Amazon gives us a couple nickels if you shop through that portal. Um, it doesn't cost you anything. You can also support us... Um, non-financially by going to iTunes giving us a good rating writing something nice about us or by spreading the word through through social media um, and some of you guys are doing that I really appreciate it. you can also support the show non-financially by um, transcribing an episode um, I've been having some people sign up to do that and uh, banging some episodes out uh, there's so many of you to list it would take me like 10 minutes to list all your names and I'm selfish so I'm not going to do that um, but you know who you are and God bless you because that is, uh, it takes about a full day for an average person to um, transcribe an entire episode. And uh, takes an unlimited amount of time for a dead person to do that. Little known fact. This first survey is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Southern Charm. She's gay. She's in her 30s. Was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic. Um ever been the victim of sexual abuse she writes some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts as sexual abuse when i was in grade school several boys in my neighborhood made me and another boy get naked and touch each other in front of them they had a surrounded and each kid either had a, a bar or a stick they also touched our genitals with the objects that sounds truly humiliating uh deepest darkest thoughts uh, i've masturbated while thinking about my dad's penis uh, deepest darkest secrets i touched a child's penis as i changed his diaper on purpose uh, then felt terrible i can't ever forgive myself um 
Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Man on man, hardcore anal sex. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, yes, uh, I have told my partner. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, yes, I feel dirty and shameful. Um, I hope you can find a way to go easier on yourself because you sound like you're being really, really hard on yourself. Um, and I, I'm particularly fascinated by that survey because um, I had never known until I started doing this show that gay people can have straight fantasies and straight people can have gay fantasies and that doesn't, there, there's no kind of necessarily clear delineation. Um, this next one is also from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sarah. She's straight, she's in her 20s, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional, uh, never been the vic victim of sexual abuse. Um, deepest, darkest thought, I cut my leg shaving in the shower once and didn't notice right away. By the time I did, the blood had mixed with the water and made an interlocking spider web of dried blood all down my calf. I think about it every so often, and I think about cutting my arm or leg again to see the blood trails across my limbs. It made me feel so calm. I have never cut myself intentionally, but I'm afraid that if I ever did, I wouldn't be able to stop. I just found that one fascinating and honest. This next one is from The Shame and Secrets, filled out by a guy who calls himself Jim Bob McGillicuddy. Gotta love that name. He's straight, he's in his 40s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Uh, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts. I've thought about killing my kids, my wife, and myself. That bullshit rationalization of sparing us all further pain in this world. I also have sadistic sexual fantasies about women. Deepest, darkest secrets, I'm pretty much an open book to my closest friends. The one thing I hate talking or thinking about is the one-night stand I had. Yeah, just the one, but still. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Taking control, dominating, tying up, raping, and or torturing beautiful, fit women. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? He writes, no, I believe it would hurt my wife. I overshared with my first wife and, well, first wife. <laughs> Uh, oversharing isn't the only reason, or even the main reason, but it didn't help. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, I feel some shame. I want to change. I'd like to purge those thoughts sometimes. Other times I enjoy the feeling of power in the fantasies. I know the thoughts don't define me. In real life, I'm a considerate and loving husband and father. I'm glad that you can, that you can see that, that there's a difference between what you think and, and what you do. Um... This is from, again, the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by Carmen. She's straight in her 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. She uh, writes, it was good a lot of the time, most of the time, just in intervals, really, really bad. Um, she was a victim of sexual abuse but never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Every day I think about suicide. I look around and I always find a way that I would do it. When I move, that's the first thing I do. Find a way to kill myself if I need to. When things get bad or even when things are good and I just feel absolutely terrible, I find comfort knowing that I could easily die. Deepest, darkest secrets. My dad died last year. He was very abusive. I hate talking ill about the dead or even when he was alive. He was great and did a lot, a lot of good. My mom was washing dishes one night and I watched him take those dishes and break them over her face. I went outside to stick my feet in the pool one night, and when I came inside, he beat up my sister in front of me because she should have been watching me. 
He broke everything in our house constantly. He ripped off all the cabinets and threw chairs in the wall, making huge holes. He would always leave for, for months, having affairs with other women. I love him and have always felt uncomfortable with him. I don't know for sure because I blur out or forget a lot of my bad past, but I know that he would look me up and down all the time. I know what he looks like naked. I can't recall anything sexual, but I know how big of a deal clothing was. He controlled everything I wore, and I have always felt awful around him and his friends. I just don't know. I really related to this one, um, Carmen. Uh, I mean, obviously, my my mom or dad were not violent, but the environment I was raising could be very invalidating, and it it's hard because you want to love your parent, but there's something inside you that you don't feel safe with that person, and that's okay to feel that. That doesn't make you a bad person at all, and um, I hope you can get to a place where, where you can find some, some peace over what your relationship was like with him because the stuff that he did, that's fucking terrifying. It is fucking terrifying. Um, this next one is from Shame and Secrets, filled out by a guy who calls himself Shameful Sean. He is straight, um, but sometimes uh, thinks he is bisexual. He's in his 20s, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. A stripper gave me herpes. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I would rather kill myself than have to admit to a beautiful girl I have herpes. I'm unhappy with my penis size and STD and will never find love, so I'd rather take painkillers, drink, and eat than deal with intimacy. Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was a child, I masturbated with male friends and my male cousin. This confuses me because sometimes I think I might be gay. When very young, on a couple occasions, my sister and I got naked and put our genitals in each other's faces. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Um, most sexual thoughts make me depressed about my penis and body, unless I'm watching porn and masturbating, uh, after which I'm filled with shame. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? He writes, I'm not even aware of what my sexual fantasies would be. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, I hate my body. And he comments to make the podcast better. He writes, try to find someone to talk about dealing with and living with STDs. It is nearly impossible to find this topic openly discussed in media. I would love to hear the topic discussed in some way if possible. It is a deep, deep cause of depression for many. Thank you for that suggestion, Sean. And anybody who lives in the L.A. area that would like to um, talk about it, we can, you can, we can use a pseudonym. We don't have to use your real name. Um, if you'd like to be a guest, um, I, I think that would be a great topic um, to talk about. And, Sean, I'm sending you a big hug, buddy. Um, you may not feel that you're lovable, but re reading your survey, um, I just... Uh, just get a warm feeling for you reading that like this guy has a lot of love inside him that is having trouble getting out and I think if you find the right people or person that's safe to you to discuss your emotions um, you get a groove going and I mean that in the stiffest whitest way possible this is from uh, and this is our last one this is from the happy moment survey and this was filled out by um, Laura 
She's straight. She's in her 20s and uh, was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic. And her happy moment is, uh, my happiest moment was just before I walked myself down the aisle at my wedding this year. A little backstory. I'm an only child with divorced parents who was forced to fly by myself multiple times a year from age 8 to 18 to visit a father I hated. My father was more emotionally stable, perhaps, than my mom, but he was an alcoholic and did not listen to me. My mom was bipolar, unmedicated throughout my childhood, but was at least more nurturing and loving than my dad, though it was very inconsistent, slash hit or miss, depending on her mood. After an incredibly inappropriate encounter with my dad when I allowed him to meet my fiancé, I decided to ban him from my wedding in all aspects. This was, as a re- this was a relief as I had agonized over how I would be able to tolerate having him walk me down the aisle, even if mom was on my other arm. My choice to walk myself alone was the most honest and brave thing I've ever done. It gave me the most tangible sense of power in my life that I think I've ever had in 25 year, 26 years. I was by myself, peeking out of a little window, watching all of our guests seated out in the grass and watching all my closest friends lined up and beginning the processional. I was supposed to start walking once the flower girl hit the aisle. This left me a few minutes to observe all this from afar. One of my favorite songs of all time was playing, and I was overcome with the reality that all of these people I was looking at were there for my husband and I because they love us. And they were all waiting for me, just me, to come so they could give me this kind of ceremonial acceptance. For the first time, I did not carry, literally or figuratively, any of the baggage of either of my parents. I felt seen and loved in the moment I had been so nervous about. What could have confirmed some of my worst fears as a person with social anxiety who was always in a defensive posture towards what everyone might be thinking of me ended up being a positive experience, overwhelmingly so. To top it all off, my husband met me in the middle of the aisle and we walked the rest of the way to the altar together, hand in hand. What a beautiful, beautiful moment to share with us. Thank you so much for that. And thank you guys for for listening and supporting the show and doing all the things that you that you do to help this. Um, the guys helping in the forum, the transcribers, the people that I correspond with by email, those of you that give me feedback. You guys know, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving a lot of you out, but thank you so, so much. Um, and if you're out there and you're stuck, I hope this last 90 minutes confirms that you are not alone in what you feel. And no matter what you've done in your life, you still deserve love. We all do. We all do. I got a <laughs> note to self. Remember that next time I'm kicking my own ass. But um, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.